essence of what God is saying to us through the book of Revelation. Um, talk to me about it. I know some of you have been studying the book of Revelation for years and years, for, for your whole life. Uh, what are you learning? What are you seeing this time? Is there anything different? Uh, anything about uh, the message that's beginning to stand out to you? Uh, what can you say uh, so far? Yeah, going back and reading the seven churches, Edie says that at different points in her life or maybe different points in her day, uh, she could be a member of any one of those churches. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. I think that's why the message continues to be let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So even though those are uh, directed messages to a specific historical group of people, anybody with ears to hear can say, oh my goodness, that, that, that could have been written to me. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. Uh, so much the same way. That's good. Uh, somebody else? What, what's, what's, what stands out? Claude? Right. 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 The bright light of hope that John is able to reveal uh, in Christ to Christians who in, centuries ago were suffering all the way up to today, those of, uh, in the Christian family who suffer, there's still that bright light of hope that is Christ and the promise of his coming. Yeah, so good, so good. Somebody else? Any, anything else? Yeah, what do you say, Joe Neal? Right. Yeah. Right. He is the lion. He is also the lamb. Yeah. You can't have strong faith in a weak Jesus, we said. And absolutely, he is the lion who comes with might and power. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Let's jump in tonight. Um, I'll do several things, and I may, I may not manage to do any of them well, but, but let, me, uh, let me start with confusing you. How's that? Revelation chapter 11, I just want to call your attention to, to one thing, and not really probably going to be able to preach this tonight, but look at what happens in Revelation 11, verse 15, because I think it's kind of fascinating, and this may help you understand part of why Revelation sort of always uh, throws you into a little bit of confusion. It's not intended to do so, but, but notice what we find right smack dab in the middle of the book, and, and it's in the middle of the book. Uh, 
Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him and they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was and, and is, who always was for you, now have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead, reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people, and all who fear your name. From the least to the greatest, it's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Then in heaven, the temple of God was open, and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared. And there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm, right? Smack dab in the middle of the book, you find this amazing worship and, and, and this proclamation that the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. I would think that's the end of the book. I would think that's where it's all headed. But I remind you this morning that it's not necessarily in chronological order. That's not what John is doing. He's not telling you a story that takes place over seven years. He's just not doing that. You see visions and multiple visions, and sometimes it flashes forward, and sometimes it flashes backward. But if you really want to dig into Revelation, do this at home. Try this at home this week. Uh, Try to outline the book of Revelation, understanding that right here, here in the middle is sort of the high point. Uh, it all sort of builds to chapter 11, verse 15, now the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of our God. And notice how Revelation is actually sort of structured almost like something that, that, that folds in on itself like this. And so if you put the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ will reign forever, if you put that in the middle, understand that everything before that kind of builds to it, and then it sort of unfolds on the, on the other side. And what's interesting is that if you put these things like on a stair step, these things sort of mirror one another. It's almost like a mirror. Uh, and again, I said I'd start by confusing you. I just did that. Uh, again, it's, it's interesting how the climax is sort of in the center and everything sort of falls toward or, or away from this proclamation. It's, it, it's, it's rather fascinating. Um, along with that, we're in the middle now tonight of the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets sort of mirror the seven bowls of wrath on the other side of, of, of this proclamation in verse 15. So I'm not going to deal a lot with the seven trumpets knowing that I'm going to come back to the seven bowls of wrath, which sounds like Matt Betts chili, but no, it's something altogether different, actually. We'll come back to the seven bowls of, of wrath. So tonight, I just want to zero in on what's usually one of the more controversial or difficult passages, and that is Revelation chapter 11. It's very difficult to to, to interpret it and understand. Um, so let me ask you, why do you think Revelation is so hard? You've read the Gospel of John, you've read the letters of John. Uh, if you're studying Greek uh, and trying to learn New Testament Greek, often one of the places you'll go is the Gospel of John or even the letters of John. First John is just one of the simplest things in the New Testament. The vocabulary is limited, it's, it's rather straightforward. John knows how to write so people will understand. So why is it that the book of Revelation is just so trippy? Why is it so full of symbols and, and, and numbers and colors and beasts? Why is this so hard to understand and interpret? Why do you think he chooses? Why do you think the Holy Spirit leads him to write like this? What do you think, Claude? Claude? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. And I agree. I, I love that. To, to simply try to find words to describe what eyes have never seen and, and what words cannot describe. Yeah, words fail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What else? Claude's right on it. I, I, exactly. How do you describe the throne of God? How, how do you describe these things? He's finding words. But, but why else? Is there any practical reason why this style of writing would be important? Now, go back. Remember the first week. Remember where John is when he's writing. Where is he? He's in prison on the Isle of Patmos. And why is he in prison? Why is he taken into custody and exiled here? For preaching. He is, he is in exile for preaching about Jesus. So, he's in prison. So, understand his ability to write, his ability to get a message in and out to the churches. All of that would be limited. So it, it makes sense to me to think that, 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 that there is a practical reason why John would sometimes use symbols that he would expect his audience would understand. The, the seven churches, the, those early Christians, he expects they'll get this because primarily they know their Old Testament. They know their Old Testament very, very well. So in many ways, John sort of uses an Old Testament kind of language that those on the inside, those who know the Scriptures very well, they'll get it. They'll understand exactly what he's saying. But the Roman guards are doofuses, and they don't know the Scriptures, they don't know the Old Testament, and they're not going to understand any, any of this. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, but understand, you could read this and might not know that if you don't know the Scriptures and if you don't know Jesus. So there may be some very practical reasons why John sort of, sort of couches the most important things he's saying in, in symbols that would probably be lost on non-believers, but would probably be understood by those who know the Scriptures. And, and, and let's illustrate that a little bit tonight. Before we jump into chapter 11, go back to your Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Uh, find the big book of Isaiah, then after that Jeremiah, after that Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Find it. Turn. Ezekiel chapter 3. I just want to show you this. Ezekiel is one of the Old Testament prophets. In John's day, the Old Testament was the Scripture. In the seven churches that he writes and all the other churches, they, they read the Bible, and all the Bible they had was the Old Testament. So, so this is their the, the whole of their scripture. So these are familiar passages, and they would know Ezekiel chapter 3. Let's just jump in right there. This is the commissioning of the prophet Ezekiel, and this is what it says. The voice said to me, son of man, eat what I'm giving you. Eat this scroll. Then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. 
Fill your stomach with this, he said, and when I ate it, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said, son of man, go to the people of Israel and give them my messages. I'm not sending you to a foreign people whose language you cannot understand. No, I am not sending you to people with strange and difficult speech. If I did, they'd listen, but the people of Israel won't listen to you any more than they listen to me. Verse 14, the spirit lifted me up and took me away. I went in bitterness and turmoil. Okay, now let's go back to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter, let's go to the end of chapter 10. I just want to show you this. It leads into chapter 11. Let's start in, in, in verse 10. John is speaking again. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 8. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and, and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. That's like Taco Bell. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. Okay, so John tells a story about receiving this, this scroll, this revelation, again, this message that he has to share. But he describes that in the very same way that Ezekiel describes his receiving the message of the Lord. In other words, John identifies here with, with the prophet Ezekiel who receives a message from God. Now, what's the whole deal about eating it? Why would the prophet be asked to eat the scroll? What's that about? Yeah. In other words, if you're going to speak for God, you need to have thoroughly digested his word for yourself. Yeah. There's nothing worse than any one of us, preacher, teacher, anyone who tries to go out and preach God's word, but they've really not digested it. If God's word is food, then I am feeding God's people with God's word. I've always felt that that's my commission, but I cannot feed you something that I have not thoroughly digested myself. And that's a problem. Honestly, if, if you all know me well, and again, I, gosh, I, I am such, I am, I, I am no kind of example, but one of the reasons that I plan sermons so far out is for this purpose. I, I don't want to preach anything that I haven't had time to practice yet. I don't want to preach anything that I haven't had time to, to study. I, I want to thoroughly digest it. I don't want to bring a half-baked word to, to you. You're God's people. You deserve better. And I believe that it's God's word, and I serve it. It deserves better from me. So, so Joniel says it's, it's almost literal. The, the man of God, the one who's going to speak for God, has to thoroughly take that word in and, and, and thoroughly digest it for himself. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. That's so important. I'm preaching to myself here. But what's the part about sweet and bitter? It, it's sweet in your mouth, but then it, it, it's sour in your stomach. Well, what does that mean? What's that say? <laughs> Billy says sometimes the Word of God sounds good until you have to practice it. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a price involved in obedience, and you cannot be a hearer of God's Word and not a doer as well. It, it, the obedience itself sometimes is, is very costly. Yeah, that, that's a good word, Billy. Yeah. 
What else? Frank, tell us. I, I know, I know you're, you're wanting to jump in here. What does it mean? Sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. You're saying burning? Yeah, burning. There's a burning, uh, Frank says, even as he prepares to preach, as he studies, that the word is sweet, but then in preparing to preach, it becomes a burning. Uh, Jeremiah talks about that, a burning in his soul, a burning in his bones uh, to preach. It's like fire shut up. Yeah, the word burning is, is like the word burden. I couldn't tell which one you were saying. Uh, I've often described it in terms of a, of a burden. I don't think I'm really ready to preach until I feel that burden to preach, that, that message that now must come back out, it, it, it must be expressed. I think in Revelation, I think in John's case, there is this sense that this message, this pulling back of the curtain, this revelation, is, is very, very good news for God's people. But this is a devastating word for the nations. It's a devastating word for the world. Remember that, that God's slowness and Jesus' slowness in, in, in coming back is not related in, in any way to his unwillingness or his laziness in, in, in saving us. It's more his patience with the world. He doesn't want to come and, and judge the nations and condemn people. And that's what it's going to mean. And you can't read Revelation without seeing that. It's, it's good news for those suffering. It's good news for believers, but it is, it, it is ultimate, ultimate destruction for the world. It is a good news, bad news proclamation, the coming kingdom. Now, now let's jump in chapter 11. Let, let's read through the, uh, these verses and uh, uh, let's see where we get tonight. A very difficult passage here, and, and our job tonight is to try to figure out who the two witnesses are. Who are the two witnesses? So John says, I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar and count the number of worshipers. Okay, stop right there. We've said that the revelation is probably written in about the year 90, 93 AD. So it's in the first century before the year 100. So about the year 93. The temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed in what year? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah, about the year 70 AD. So the temple is not there. It's a memory for those people who would have been in Jerusalem 20-something years ago, but the temple no longer exists. It's only a memory. Okay, so understand that. Back up. So go and measure the temple of God in the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. That's a reference to, I think, Zephaniah chapter 4. I, I believe Zephaniah chapter 4. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. Verse 6. Here's your clue. You ready? They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. 
When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who have tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Okay, okay. we said that, that John uses symbols, so, so let's talk about some of the symbols here. What are the symbols that he uses in chapter 11? Let's start at the first. I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and, and the altar. Like I said, the, the, the temple's no longer there, so John's not measuring a literal temple. And it's not the temple in heaven, as some have said, because obviously the, the, the outer court is turned over to the nations. It's going to be trampled. So this is something pertaining to earthly life, earthly existence. What do you think is symbolized here when he says, go measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers? What's the message? You ever had the old saying, I used to do it when we were a kid, we used to do that thing where we'd say, uh, here's the church and here's the steeple and open the door and see all the people. Yeah, I was always confused. I used to do this and this and I would go, oh man, there's a... Where are the people? Where are the people? Yeah. It's a whole idea of, of whether or not the temple, the church is the building or, or, or the people. So notice the emphasis here. Go and measure the temple of God in the altar and, and, and do what? Count the worshipers. So the emphasis here is less on the building. We're not really interested in a survey. We're not, we're not going to draw a map of the building here. It's about the worshipers. It's about the people. So go to the, to the house of God and, and count the people. Count the, the people. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it's been turned over to the nation. So, so what's happening here? What's John saying? There's sort of a division here. Now, the temple always had divisions. If you know anything about the Old Testament temple, there were different courts and courtyards and places where only some people could go and places where anybody could go, the outer court, the inner court, that sort of thing. So the temple was always about division. But notice in John's vision here, there's only one division, absolutely only one division. Go measure the temple of God and the altar. You see, the altar's in the most holy place. So, so this is a place that at one point only the priest could go. But it sounds like here there are worshipers there. Do you understand? There's no more division. It's as if everyone in the temple now, all of God's people are themselves priests, which John's already said multiple times here. He's made us to be a kingdom of priests. So go, go to the temple, find the most holy place, and count the worshipers there. Once more, it's that idea that, that God counts, God numbers, God seals his people. This is a sign of his protection. No matter what happens, God is going to protect his people. But there's a division here. 
count those who are worshiping, count those who belong to the temple, to the house of God, but, but don't count outside. So, so what's the message there? What's the point there? there? There's a division now between the people. There are those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. And notice what it says. Don't measure the outer courtyard. It's been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. All right. Now, if you're a revelation junkie, like I know some of you are, you're burning up that the New Living Translation says 42 months or 1,260 days because you want it to be three and a half years. Yeah. Three and a half years. Because that's a very important number in the book of Revelation, and in a lot of people's interpretations and schemes and maps and timelines of Revelation, that that period of three and a half becomes very, very important, and it is important. But what we have to discern is what does it mean? What does John expect us to carry away from, from that symbolic number? It's used several times in chapter 11 here in different forms, three and a half. Three and a half, three and a half. Do not measure the outer courtyard. It's going to be trampled by the nations for three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They'll be clothed in burlap and prophesy for three and a half years. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them. Their bodies will lay in the street. And after Three and a half days, you see it's at three and a half. After three and a half days, verse 11, God breathed life into them. Three and a half, three and a half, three and a half. What's three and a half? Now, uh, uh, we could spend all night doing this. I I won't. It'll drive some of you nuts that that we're not. But it goes back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel does talk about these these weeks of years, 70 weeks of years. And and it's in Daniel where this number seven and, and the number three and a half becomes very important. John knows that everyone who would have read or or heard his book read in the first place, they know the book of Daniel, and and that's immediately going to connect with them. Now, whatever else it means, whatever else it means, in Daniel, that, that period of three and a half years refers to the time of persecution. So three and a half in apocalyptic literature is always sort of that time of persecution. Now, whether it's meant to be literal, three and a half, measure it on, on your calendar, uh, we can agree or disagree about that. But it's at least always a reference to a time of persecution. Now, again, three and a half. This morning we talked about the number seven, how in the book of Revelation the number seven is is what kind of number? It's the perfect number. It's the number of God. It always symbolizes completion. It always symbolizes perfection, God's kind of perfection. So understand, three and a half is what compared to seven? It's half. It's, it's partial. So three and a half is, is, is going to represent that which is partial, that which is imperfect, that which is, is limited. So, again, if we're talking about a time of persecution, that number three and a half becomes almost that, that beacon of hope that Claude is talking about. Because if it's three and a half, that means it's limited. It's not seven. It doesn't go on forever. It's not perfect. It's not unlimited. It's limited. It's partial and it's measured. And that simply means there's a limit to this. It doesn't last forever, all right? So do not measure the outer courtyard. It will be turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for three and a half years. And I'll give power to my two witnesses. Here we go. They will be clothed in burlap and they will preach or prophesy for three and a half years. Again, it's a measured time. It's a temporary time. 
All right, who are they? What do they represent? Maybe they're two actual prophets. Let's see. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Again, that's a reference to the book of Zephaniah chapter 4, I believe. Uh, Two olive trees, two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky. Okay, verse 6 is the big key here. They have power to shut the sky so that no, one, no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. Now, who, who did that? That's Elijah, all right? That's a direct reference to Elijah. Anybody who knows their Old Testament knows that's Elijah. That's Elijah, all right? And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's Moses. So the two witnesses are two, Moses and Elijah. Are we really talking about Moses and Elijah? Some people have said yes. Some people have said yes. Uh, growing up, my preacher said yes, this will be Moses and Elijah come back to preach. Now that would, I'm not, a, I don't really believe that, but I'm all for it. You know, that, that would just be awesome. And one of the interesting things about it is that both Moses and, and Elijah have, have strange Uh, Strange circumstances surrounding their deaths, uh, almost leading to the belief that maybe they didn't really die. Remember Moses, it says died and and God buried him, but but nobody witnessed his death. Moses just went off and and, and died in, in, in God's presence. And Elijah, what happened to him? He's just taken up into a whirlwind. So, you know, nobody went to Elijah's funeral either. So there is this idea that, 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 that maybe those two are just kept and, and they're going to come back and, and preach. My old pastor used to say that. Again, I don't really believe that, but I'm not against it. That's awesome. That, that, that's awesome. But at any rate, we're meant to associate these two witnesses with Moses and, and Elijah. Now, if it's not Moses and Elijah literally, then who would they symbolize here? Who else could it be? These witnesses who, who bear powerful testimony during a time of persecution. Who could they be? Some people say possibly the, the church itself. It's the church. They represent the, the, the witnessing of the church itself. All of us together who bear witness with, with power. And notice the power. Anyone who tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths, consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. That there's power, power with the church. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall. They have power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood, strike the earth with every kind of plant. Now, for all of that power, what happens to them? They're still killed. They're still martyred. Their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that's figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. And, And for three and a half days, all people's tribes, languages will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. And people will gloat over them and give presents to each other. So some people read this and say, this must be the church. This must be the church who bears witness with power, but even with their power still, it, it seems that the, the, that the beast, the dragon, the devil has this limited power to, to silence them, but, but he never really succeeds. After three and a half days, God breathes life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. A loud voice from heaven says, come up here. They rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, 
terrible earthquake destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died and everybody else was terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. So there's this picture of, of, of proclamation, of preaching with great power, but also great peril. They're martyred in the streets of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, Jesus said. You understand? But even after their martyrdom, still because of God's power, they are, they are triumphant, they are raised again, and, and the world is left in, in terror to, to give glory to God and God alone. I don't know about that, but I like that too. I'm, I'm for that. I, I mean, if that's what you say, I'm all about that. But I don't know. I'm sort of leaning another direction, and, and let me sort of show you what I'm thinking. It's Moses and Elijah. Moses and, and Elijah. Turn back to Luke chapter 16. Let me just remind you of, of a way that the early church spoke. Luke chapter 16, verse 29. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, as you know. And the rich man died. He had, in, in life, he had been comforted, but after death, the rich man uh, in hell lifted up his eyes. And you know that story. Once he was in hell, he became very, very concerned for his five brothers back on earth. And he said, please, Father, will you send Lazarus back? Uh, send Lazarus to tell my brothers so that they don't end up in this place of torment. Verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. They have Moses and the prophets. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 27. Remember this part. The two disciples who were walking back on Easter Sunday, the tomb was empty, but they didn't know what it meant. They encountered Jesus walking along the road, and as they went, it says in verse 25, Jesus said, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures, wasn't it clearly predicted, and on and on, verse 27, then Jesus took them through Moses and the prophets, Moses and the prophets explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. In the early church, it was very typical to refer to the Bible as the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, do you understand? So uh, I, when I read chapter 11, I, I feel like we're talking about the Bible here. I feel like John has this vision, this revelation that talks about the power of the Word of God, Moses and the prophets. Now, if, if you read it that way, then understand, the, 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 these two are lampstands. The Word is uh, a, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. You understand that? If anyone tries to harm them, fly, fire flashes from their mouths, consumes their enemies. The power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall. The power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood. Moses and the prophets. And when they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and, and kill them. Are, are we talking about the Word of God here? One of the things we know about the early persecution of these churches in Asia Minor, in, in ancient Turkey, is that the Roman Empire did begin to confiscate the scriptures. In, in any persecution, it's one of the first things they do. You know this, right? They, they confiscate the scriptures. They, they take the Bibles. Because if you can separate God's people from God's word, there is the assumption that you can defeat them. So what if this chapter is talking about the, the Word of, of God? What, what if we're talking about the Bible here? If that is true, then you've got to understand that the Word of God has great power. It has great power. 
I remember a class with an amazing New Testament scholar whose name was Dr. William Lane. He lived in Bowling Green, and some of you would have known Dr. Lane. Uh, I, I took a class in the parables of Jesus with Dr. Lane, and Dr. Lane was a world-class scholar. And on his reading list, he had uh, asked us to read some very liberal, very liberal books by scholars who it seems like barely believe the Bible at all. And honestly, it was my first exposure to anybody who didn't have a real respect for God's Word. Uh, and I wasn't the only one. That first night after we came back after reading a, a, a book by a very liberal scholar, we, we were just almost in tears. We were all so upset. We had never found anybody, we never heard anybody or read anybody who would actually criticize or cause you to question the, the truth of what God's Word says. It was terrifying. And part of it was, was going back and thinking, Dr. Lane made me read this. Dr. Lane, what are you thinking? We thought you loved the Bible. You know, Dr. Lane, why would you ask us to read a book like this? And, and, and Dr. Lane immediately, immediately connected with what we were saying and, and thinking. And Dr. Lane stood up in front of the class and said, what do you all think this is? He says, the Word of God is a lion. It is not something that you have to defend. It is not something that you have to be nervous and anxious about. It is a lion that you simply turn loose. You understand? He was trying to help us understand the Word of God is not fragile. It's not something that can't withstand the criticism. It's not something that other people can destroy or, or take away. The Word of God is living and, and active. You understand? So no matter what anybody tries to do to separate God's people from God's Word, it, it, it cannot be done. It absolutely cannot be done. God's Word is, is a lion. You just turn it loose. It has power. It has real power. Whenever it is preached, it delivers results. It, it has power. Real power. Fire flashes from their mouths. It consumes their enemies. They have this power to shut the sky. When they complete their testimony, the beast comes out of the bottomless pit. Do you not understand the, 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 the opposition that the devil has toward God's Word, especially in the lives of God's people? I said that, that there's this assumption that if you can separate God's people from God's Word, that you can defeat them. So why do you think it's so hard for you to read your Bible when you're home by yourself? Why do you think it's so hard that every single time you open up these pages, all of a sudden your, your mind just goes, squirrel? Why do you think that every time you try to read the Word of God, all you can start thinking about is your grocery list? Because every time it's open, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit declares war. Don't you understand this? If he can separate you from God's word, he defeats you. Defeats you every time. In the book, The Insanity of God, which our staff read together not long ago, it's, it's a, a book of stories that come out of persecution, and, and it's a devastatingly beautiful book. One of the stories, I, I believe, comes out of Russia, I believe it was Russia, Ukraine. But back, back during uh, communist rule when the church was severely persecuted in, in, in Russia, the word of God was very rare. People didn't have Bibles. You, you know this, right? I mean, it, it was illegal. So of all things, this underground church, they decided to have a youth conference in Moscow. Now, that in itself... I would think would be the most dangerous thing you could possibly do, but they did it. 
They had teenagers come together. These are teenagers who had always only worshipped in tiny secret house churches. They really had very little awareness of the, of the church at large at all. But when they got those teenagers together, most of whom had never held a paper Bible in their hands, they thought they would try an experiment to see how much of the Word of God they could put together. And so those teenagers at that meeting, who had never ever even been together nor held a paper Bible, those teenagers in persecution were able to completely reconstruct word for word all of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, word for word from their hearts, and over 1,200 hymns and praise songs from their hearts. You know anything about what's happened in Russia, as you know, that the church isn't as persecuted anymore and there is relative freedom. The comparison was made between those kids of persecution and a number of years later, the next generation of youth brought together. They have the Bible, they have freedom. They weren't able to produce anything. You understand? They didn't have the Word of God in their hearts. They weren't able to give you Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It was gone. And generation gone. If we didn't have the Word of God in front of us, how much of it is in our hearts? You know what I'm saying? Could we have worship? Would we be able to sing without words on the screen? Would it paralyze you? If, if I couldn't read the words of the scripture, would I be able to bring the words from my heart? I said this morning that we must read the Bible as if someone would come and tear it out of our hands. It, it, it should mean that much to us. B because the devil knows that if he can separate us from God's word, he gets victory. Now, he has no power over God's word. I think this is what Revelation 11 teaches us. He has no power over God's word. The only way he can separate us from God's word is if he can just cause us not to read it, not to take it seriously, not to value it. So if you were honest, many of you are already walking in defeat. God's word has power, but not in your life because you don't have God's word in your life. To whatever extent that is true of you and me, it's a devastating thing to admit. Let's stop there. We, we will come back next Sunday morning. Um, again, I, I encourage you to keep reading. Uh, again, what comes next is the seventh trumpet, which proclaims the, the coming kingdom of God. From there, the book of Re Revelation almost unfolds in the opposite direction, and it's really fascinating to see. Read ahead, and we will come back next Sunday morning. Uh, I love you guys so much. We do have a family meeting now, so let me have a word of prayer. Give you about two minutes to change gears, gather reports. We'll come back and, and, and go through our decisions together. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, your, your word is full of mystery, and in some places, Lord, it goes beyond us. We begin to despair of our ability to read and understand. But God, you have said that your word is like bread, uh, 
without which we cannot live. And God, my fear is this congregation that I love with all my heart, this congregation that I I stand before to feed with your word, Lord. My great burden is that they often seem to sit before me with so little hunger for it. Maybe the problem is, Lord, I begin to preach things I've not yet digested myself. Maybe I'm preaching things I've yet to practice. God, help me. And help us together, Lord, that we might have the fire and the power of your word in our lives. We know that the moment we begin to walk in the word, we know that the devil will oppose us. But Lord, we know that he cannot stand uh, before the power of your word and the word of our testimony. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us faithful witnesses, even as we bear witness to the words of scripture. Let it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And may we hide its words in our heart that we might not sin against you. Lord Jesus, let us go our ways this week, but let us take up your word and, Lord, teach us to see your face in its pages and hear your voice in its words and teach us, Lord, to make its truth the light for our paths. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who died for us and who is and is alone the living word. Amen.